Go with me to Exodus 3. We've been talking about the call of God on, uh, in the lives of some, some of the judges in the book of Judges. And we're going to transition today over to talking about God's call on the prophets. Now, um, and, and for the rest of the summer, we'll talk about different ones of the prophets. Next week, we'll be in Isaiah 6. We'll talk about the call of Isaiah, and we'll kind of track on through there. Um, some people are not very prophetic. Others are. Here's a few that were not all that prophetic. Uh, let, me, let me quote some of them. Um, um, this was a memo uh, from MGM Studios after the first showing of The Wizard of Oz. Some uh, MGM um, uh, executive said this, the rainbow song's no good. Take it out. A bad predictor, you know, a bad prophet, all right? Um, uh, here's, here's one that uh, um, Decca Records executive in 1962 heard the Beatles and said this, we don't like their sound. Groups of guitars are on the way out. What a prophetic guy, you know? All right. Um, um, the, the editor of the, of the magazine Radio Times, a guy by the name of Rex Lambert, in 1936 said, television won't matter in your lifetime or mine. <laughs> um, here's the one that kind of makes me a little crazy. A guy by the name of Ken Olson in 1977. So this is fairly late. In 1977, he was the president of Digital Equipment Corporation. And he said this, there is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. How many of us have one of some kind with us today? Not only in our home, but here in church. Yeah. So um, anyway, those people were not very prophetic, if you ask me. We're going to meet a guy today that you may think uh, it's kind of an odd choice to call him a prophet. But the truth is, for prophets, serving the Lord in a broken, sin-cursed world can be the source of great joy and satisfaction, uh, but it also can produce some pretty agonizing moments. The Old Testament prophets, who are going to be the focus of these, this next unit of study, are, are men uh, who exemplified that battle. Now, the first one we're going to consider today is Moses, and you may think of Moses more as a lawgiver than a prophet, but the truth is that prophets are not just foretellers, think of, don't think of uh, fortune tellers, but they're not just people who foretell the future, but they're also those who foretell the truth, okay? So um, it, it's an important distinction that, that prophets uh, do both of those things. Uh, when a pastor stands in front of people, he is Forthtelling, he's exercising a, prof a prophetic gift. Prophets were often the subject of verbal and physical abuse because they spoke unpleasant truth and they spoke it often boldly and plainly. They often did that without regard for the consequences. Now, some think of Moses not as a prophet, but as a lawgiver. But the truth is that in a couple of places in Scripture, in Deuteronomy 18 and, and certainly in, in Deuteronomy 34, uh, the Bible calls Moses a prophet. Listen to, listen to Deuteronomy 34.10. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Isn't it interesting? The Bible calls Moses a prophet. 
in a couple of places. So we're going to kind of approach him in this uh, series on the calling of the prophets. Now, Moses began his service to the Lord in the need of his own kind of a spokesman or a prophet, his brother Aaron. We'll talk about that a little bit. But in time, Moses would learn an important lesson. The key to answering God's call is found not in who the servant is, who the human servant is, but in who God is. And that principle still holds true. Now, in his defense before the Sanhedrin, Stephen, in Acts 7 and 8, um, talks quite a bit about Moses. And he, he relates how Moses had killed an Egyptian whom he saw beating one of his own people, one of the Israelites. And according to Stephen, Moses assumed that fellow Israelites would acknowledge him as their deliverer and rally around his efforts when he did that. But that was not the case. Moses had been rejected as a deliverer, and so he fled Egypt. He ended up in Midian, where he married Zipporah, one of the seven daughters of a man named Jethro. And that's the uh, position or the place that we find Moses in as we start Exodus 3. Steve Blair, I'm going to ask you, if you will, to read the first five verses of um, Exodus 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Okay. Now let's talk for a minute about who this guy Jethro is. What do you think of when you hear the name Jethro? Beverly Hillbillies. Come on, let's be honest. The most famous Jethro of all time besides this one, I suppose. But it's interesting that the name Jethro um, that is used here in, uh, in chapter 3 is um, first introduced in 2.18 in the previous chapter as he's introduced, this character is introduced as Ruel, okay? R-E-U. Got to spell it right in my head. R-E-U-E-L. I knew there was a second E in there somewhere. Some suggest that that's his real name because rule is, is, um, uh, could be translated as friend of God. And they think that maybe Jethro, which is kind of his excellency in the original language. Some believe that Jethro was a title, that his real name was really Ruel, but you, you really only see that name and you see Jethro in other places. And he's only identified here as Jethro or his excellency as the priest of Midian. Now, we know that, um, that uh, Midian, that tribe, was uh, one of the sons, Midian was one of the sons of Abraham who, uh, he, who was born to him by his wife Keturah after Sarah died. And uh, that became one of the tribes in that region. And, uh, but we don't know a whole lot about Jethro 
or his priesthood. It's kind of uncertain. There's a lot of conjecture we can make on that. I'll, I'll re resist that, at least for today. But Midianite territory, if you're looking at a Bible map, includes a, a pretty large uh, desert area. And Moses flees over there to the east and begins to tend the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. And, uh, uh, and in the, at this point, he goes from where the family is kind of hanging out um, over to um, the Sinai Peninsula, what we kind of know as the Sinai Peninsula today, um, at the southern end of that peninsula, looking for, for pasture land. Joe, that is the answer that we don't have to your question earlier about how did they feed the sheep when they were, when they were doing manna. I don't really know. But, but I know here, Moses goes to another place to, to find pasture land for his father-in-law's flocks. And he goes to a place that's identified here as Horeb. Now, Horeb is an interesting place also because we know that this place where God uh, comes to him, he's going to come back to later. It's generally believed to be either, okay, another name for Sinai, Mount Sinai, or another peak in that region of the Sinai Peninsula, or Horeb is the entire range of mountains of which Sinai is one, one particular mountain. So don't get hung up on that. It's in the same region. Horeb and Sinai basically are, are equivalent, but at least we know kind of the general area where he was. Now he's there by himself. He's been doing this job for a long time. He's raised a family pretty well. And he's just doing his work on a particular day and verse 2 happens. God appears to Moses in the form of fire. Now, what's different about this particular burning bush? It, the word is consumed in the, in the New American Standard, I think, in verse 3, uh, verse 2. Uh, it, it is burning, but it's not consumed. Uh, verse 3, if you're reading that same translation, will say um, it, it wasn't consumed in verse 2. And in verse 3, it'll say it was not burned up. Now, I think the NIV uses burned up in both spots. Okay? So the idea is, you ever had it, somebody put, um, put uh, candles on your birthday cake to test your wind? And they put those trick candles on that, you know... <laughs> They burn and you blow them out and they burn again. They blow them out and they burn again. Okay. It wasn't that, but it, you get the idea. Okay. Uh, they were, this bush, while, and think about this. Now, they're in an arid desert region. Think of, uh, in, our, in our area, think of driving through Texas or New Mexico and seeing um, tumbleweeds. Okay. So you've got something that's really scrubby. Uh, or think of, in, in, maybe in your backyard, a cedar tree that's just like gasoline. Goes up, and goes up in flame, but they go out when they're burned up. This, this bush was not burned up. It was just burning and continued to burn. So by the time we get to um, verse 3, Moses is the word that I chose to put in here. Moses is kind of captivated by this sight. It's odd. Different. Intriguing. Something is out of place. 
Something is not as it should be. And Moses is captivated by what's going on. Now, here's my question. Would you have investigated like he did? Are you that curious? You are. You are. I might have said, uh, dear, you don't want to go over there. But Moses is captivated by this thing. He, this is so strange, so out of place. I've got to get closer to investigate. Uh, the New American Standard in verse 3 will say, I think in the NIV it says, I will go over there and see this thing. In the New American Standard, I think it's stronger. It says, I must investigate. He's just compelled to like all get out to go see this weird thing taking place. And so he goes to view this bush that while burning will not burn this is great English, will not burn up. That seems out of place, but okay. It doesn't burn up. Now, let me read verse 14. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Moses said, here I am. He sees the bush now he hears a voice. And this voice is, sounds in, incredibly a lot like Charlton Heston. <laughs> Resounding voice. And the voice calls to Moses and says, Psst. <laughs> no, he doesn't do that, does he? Uh, by the way, where did that come into the English language? The word and how do you spell it? P-S-S-S-S-S-S-T. Okay, yeah. All right. Now, that's not what God does when he calls first time. The first time Moses hears the call of God, he hears his name. Now, we got to go a couple other places. Follow me here, if you will. Um, first book of the Bible, back to the left. Genesis 22 Moses calls to Abraham in a similar way. Genesis 22, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, twice. Do you notice here in Exodus 3, Moses calls, uh, God calls Moses' name twice. Moses, Moses. Now, by the way, look at Abraham's reaction. And he said, Oh, wait a minute, got to go back here. We're at 11. He said, um, but the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. The same answer as Moses. Okay, got that right. That's, that's good. Now, uh, let's go to Genesis 46, 1. Okay, so we're right in between our text for today and where we just were. Genesis 46. Look at verse 1. So Israel, that's Jacob, set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, a tw twice again. And he said, here I am. By the way, I think this must be the right answer when God calls your name. Here I am. It would be silly not to say that, I think, because he knows where you are. All right, now go with me to the New Testament, to the book of Acts. 
get a little bit different answer, but mainly the same. Acts 9, verse 4. This is a man by the name of Saul who is persecuting the church. He later, will, his name will be changed to Paul. And he fell to the ground, 9-4. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord answers that. So it's interesting. A little bit different answer, but I think it's a similar answer. Here I am. And now who are you? Uh, now it's interesting here that he has seen the bush. Now he hears a voice. And I think when God answers, when God calls your name, um, the answer that we saw here is the right one. Here I am. We'll talk about the implications of that in a little bit. But the answer, here I am. So he calls his name twice and Moses answers, here I am. And in verse five, the Lord says to Moses, um, Take off your shoes. Steve, because you're about ready to leave probably here in a minute, would you go to Joshua 5? Because we want to hear your lovely voice one more time. And read 13, 14, and 15. There's a couple of times in scriptures where somebody is told to do this. Joshua, who will be Moses' assistant and later on his uh, successor, is also told to do a similar thing here. Uh, it's in Joshua, what did I say, 5, 13, 14, and 15. Steve, are you there? You got that one? I, I didn't give you enough time, did I? Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Josh, oh. That, that's good right there. Now, there, Moses and Joshua are both told to do the same thing. That the, the Lord's voice coming out of the bush, and then the Lord's representative, the angel later on in, in the book of Joshua, says to him, take off your shoes, dig in your toes. This dirt under your feet is holy ground. Feel the sand under your toes. This is different. Now the word holy here literally means unique, different. This is different. This is not a normal place. This is not your usual place. You ought to take off your shoes in reverence and dig into it for just a minute. And so both of these men do that. Now, it caused me to ask the question, okay, comparing these two stories. It caused me to ask the question, what makes this place holy? Why, um, uh, why is this a holy place? What makes it holy? And the only answer I can come up with is there was obviously the presence of God in that place. Certainly in the burning bush, God was there. And God's representative was there in the call to Joshua in Joshua 5. So God's presence was there, 
But I don't think it's only that. I think there's another reason that God says this is a holy place. God's call is holy. His call to you that we've been talking about for now, six weeks, something like that, is a holy call. It's not to be taken lightly. Whatever it is that he's troubling you about in your spirit to do is a holy call, like it was with Moses, like it was with his successor, Joshua. The call of God is holy. Now, as we go on, Cindy, if I get you to pick up in verse 6 in a minute. In fact, I want you to just read verse 6 for a second. And then we'll go on through 10. Then, I'm going to ask the question again here. What makes this ground holy? Read verse 6, Cindy. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Okay, now, again, I don't think it's about the place. Now, Sinai and the desert is going to be a holy place for, for Hebrew people throughout their history and even now. If you were there and you could zero in specifically on where the burning bush was or where the mountain of God was, you would feel like this is a holy place. But I got to be, got to be really careful here because as, as different as this place Crossing Community Church Fields. I was uh, attending a wedding last night in the chapel. And it anytime I'm in there, it just reminds me of the old church. And what a holy place that always felt to me to be. But this has become a holy place to me too. But i got to be careful because it's not about the place. It was November, I think, 1976. Um, a couple of months back, about that same time, 40 years later, I took my daughter to a holy place for Rhonda and me, the chapel at SNU, which was then B and C. And I said, here's the little chapel where I proposed to your mother. And it's kind of a holy place for our family, but it's not about the place. I remember that place being much cooler than it was when I saw it 40 years later. Although it's still pretty cool. When I proposed to Heather's mother, I said to her, God has his call on my life. And I really want you to go with me. And 40 years later, I think still this morning, she's still with me. I think. Although I... I was tempted to honk the horn when we were a little late this morning, but I didn't do it. <laughs> what made that little chapel holy was God's call on my life. Not the place. Not the place. What happened there? Now, I really don't completely understand this deal of, okay, take off your sandals, buddy, and Dig in your heels. Dig, let your toes feel this sand because this is holy sand. I don't completely understand it, but, but I, if I understand a little bit, what I realize is that God's call is the holy piece of this. He's calling 
the call. That's what happened there. So Cindy, if you would, pick it up at verse 7 and read down through 10. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now... The cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now I go. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Thank you for getting through all those ites. You know, when I was, uh, my very first full-time church physician was in a place called Paris, Kentucky. And I often tried to call them the parasites, and they didn't like that at all. You don't think they would? Okay. Heather's, we brought Heather home to a little house in Paris, Kentucky, in Bourbon County, Kentucky. But they didn't like to be called parasites. Okay, so. Um, maybe they were, but Parisians didn't seem to fit those particular people. So, all right. Huh? There were Bourbonites, that's true. Okay. All right, sorry. Um, now, I want you to go with me, turn back to Genesis 15. It's just a few pages to the left. Genesis 15, and I want you to hear how God prophesied over them to Abraham um, what was gonna happen before Moses comes on the scene. Now, I'm, I'm in Genesis 15, I'm gonna read verse 13. Okay, listen, this is interesting to me because it's really specifically predicted. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants, that's Moses and his people, will be strangers in a land that's not theirs while they'll be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. So uh, before uh, Moses or anybody ever was born, generations before, God predicted that the nation of Israel would be enslaved for 400 years. And now we're at, as we meet Moses here in Exodus 3, we're at the end of that period of time. And God says... In Exodus 3, I know. I know. You ever been sharing your issue, your problem, your challenge with a friend? And they just look at you lovingly and knowingly and say, I know. I know. That's the heart of this verse. Moses, I've looked at your people and I know, I know. In Isaiah 53, about verse three, in, in this wonderful description, I believe, of the cross of Christ from really almost 800 years before it took place. Talk about prophecy. The Bible says, he is a man of sorrows and is acquainted with grief. He knows. What is it that hurts you today? 
What is it that causes you grief today? I want you to hear the Lord God, the master of the universe, placing his hand on you and saying, I know, I know, because he does. He gets it. He's acquainted with grief, not yours, not just yours, but for millions of other griefs. He knows. God knows. And he says to Moses, I know about what your people have gone through. They're my people too. Now, so the Lord in verse 8 begins to talk about how he is planning now from move, to move from just awareness, knowing, to action. Uh, um, I put a couple of verses uh, reference in there, but literally he's going to say in other places, I'm going to do this by my, my mighty hand. I'm getting ready to act here. So he's moving. God is going to move from just awareness, knowledge of what's going on, to acting on it. That's a place where you and I need to go, okay? To not just read about it in the paper and say, that's bad, somebody ought to do something about that. But then to get involved. And so God says, I'm moving to, I'm going to move to action here. And in verse 9, listen to it again. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now, I want you to go back with me to Genesis one more time. You can put in your blank there, God sees. Go to Genesis 16, and I want to read to you the plight of a young lady by the name of Hagar. She was um, Sarah's maid, and she was given to Sarah's husband, Abraham, as kind of a surrogate mother when Sarah thought she would never conceive. Sarah got ahead of God, and so did Abraham. Hagar is hated by Sarah after this, and she tries to run away, and we're going to pick up that story in verse 7 from Genesis 16. Here we go. Now the angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by the spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring of the way to shore, and he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, by the way, he knew her, where have you come from? Where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing to the presence of my mistress, Sarah, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so they will be too many to count. And the angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man and his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. By the way, in, in Hebrew, El Roy. You see. God sees. Now, what does it mean to you? Whatever it is that you're going through, what does it mean to you that God knows and that he sees? You ever pleading with him, kind of shaking your fist at him? 
maybe at some point, which is okay, by the way, as long as you're still talking to him, and say, Lord, don't you see this? Yeah, I see. He doesn't miss anything. God, he is the God who sees. So God says, I know about the affliction of my people Israel. I see what's going on. I'm going to act in it. And in verse 10, he gets really, really personal. And Moses doesn't like it one bit. Um, he says here in verse 10, uh, the Lord says to Moses, therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. His action is personal here. Up to this point, Moses is hearing God's plan and it's all good. Yay, God, go get them. Then it gets personal. Yeah, I'm going to get them. We're going to defeat the Israelites, the, the Egyptians. We're going to release the Israelites from that 400 years of bondage that I predicted way back from before Israel himself was ever born. He's talking to his grandpappy. And guess how I'm going to do this? We are going. I'm going to send you. And Moses just about chokes. Cindy, can I get you to read verse 11 and 12? But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Here's my sign. You're coming back here someday. But in the meantime, you're going to bring a couple of million people with you. Now, what's interesting to me is that as Cindy was reading verse 11, whatever willingness Moses previously has, has now waned. His, um, if you go back and read in chapter 2 about the murder of the Egyptian who was, who was beating uh, the Hebrew, uh, his Hebrew countrymen, his first attempt at, at doing something about this failed. He was willing then, but that was 40 years ago. By the way, if you look at 7-7, it says that Moses is 80 and his brother's older than that. That was 40 years ago. That was my first attempt. I got involved and it didn't go very well. Then, Moses was a courtier in Pharaoh's court. He had a lot of clout, had a lot of position. But now, I'm just a shepherd. I work for my father-in-law, for crying out loud. Can I ask you something? Is age an exemption from serving God? I'm not answering that. I'll let you answer that. Young or old is an exemption from doing what God's calling you to do. Is status an exemption? Moses had it. He lost it. He was young, younger. Now he's old-er. And it doesn't seem like it gets him a break here. So, 
I think one of the beauties of this story is that Moses learns that he's not disqualified by his self-doubt. We read about Gideon a few weeks back. In, in, in Judges 6, uh, Gideon says, you know what? I am really young and my, my, um, my tribe is tiny. Surely you need somebody else, not me. And Jeremiah, at the beginning of his call, Jeremiah says, wait a minute, God, I know you're, you're calling me to service, but I'm just a kid. In both of those instances, and in this instance here in verse 12, God makes a promise. He says, you do what I'm calling you to do, and I will be with you. The vast majority of those who run for elected office do so quite willingly. That wasn't the case for Dwight David Eisenhower. He had success as supreme commander of the Allied forces in Europe in World War II. Before 1948 presidential election, both major parties mounted draft Eisenhower movements. Can you imagine? They both wanted to run him. Trying to persuade him to run. President Truman even offered to serve as vice president if Eisenhower would accept the Democratic nomination for president. What convinced Eisenhower that he should run was the announcement by Senator Robert A. Taft that he was going to run. Taft was an isolationist. Eisenhower believed America needed to combat communism actively. Here's what Eisenhower finally said. I do not believe that you or I or anyone else has the right to state categorically that he will not perform any duty that his country might demand of him. Moses was also reluctant. God had a draft Moses campaign going on. And God and Moses tried to focus on his own lack of ability, his age, his disability, but God wouldn't take no for an answer. Moses tried to say, here am I, Lord. Remember, we, he said it a while ago. Here am I, Lord, send him. But God doesn't take no for an answer easily. He still doesn't. What's the difference between a humble, honest self-doubt and merely the desire to not get involved. Moses is a great example of this. So, in closing, let me just ask you the question. What can you count on when you're called to take the lead? Can I tell you something? You are being called to take the lead somewhere. Where are you being called to take the lead. Here's what you can count on. He says it here. He said it in Judges that we looked at. Jesus said it at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. I am with you always. Here's the promise. Whatever he's calling you to do, you can count on his presence. That ought to give you a little bit of comfort at least. If he's calling you to do it, he's not going to leave you by yourself in doing so. I promise you that. The Bible promises you that. 
So before you ask the question, who am I? Ever ask it? I have. Still do occasionally. Who am I to do this? Who am I? Before you ask the question, who am I? I need to snap you back to the reality of who he is. If he wants it done, it's going to be done. So before I ask the question, who, Lord, am I? I need to remember who is the Lord. Okay. You've been thinking about this, any? What's God calling you to do in this season of your life? I can make you a promise. He's calling you to do something. You know? We can work through excuse after reason after excuse after reason. And when it comes down to it, if the Lord is calling you to it, he's also promising his presence in the middle of it. And he will empower you by his spirit, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about Samson. Before you ask, who am I? Please answer the question, who is he? I love working through this stuff with you. I will be in Isaiah 6 next week. He's also going to give the Lord an answer. And uh, we'll see what the call was on Isaiah's life. See you then. Thanks. Have a good Sunday.